welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Welcome to the podcast today, everyone. We're going to be covering the case of the Queen and Golden. So before we get into discussing this case, I want to put out a content warning because the um, the fact scenario of this case and the material that this case deals with is very graphic and very, very horrific. It deals with strip searches and the, um, the fact scenario of the strip search that takes place in the case um, is extremely disturbing. And like I said, if this isn't, this isn't for you, don't, uh, don't feel worried about it. Take care of yourself first of all. And then, you know, you can, you can learn about the rule of golden without necessarily having to read through the entire case. So do it, do it in the way that best um, is best for you. So Carly, do you remember taking Golden at all? I'm sure it must have come up. Yeah, it did. So we did it in, we might have talked about it in criminal procedure, but I don't remember. But we definitely talked about it in criminal law, I think. Or maybe I'm getting that reversed. Either way, in either criminal law or criminal procedure, we discussed this because I remember that um, Professor Tanovich came to talk about this case specifically. And uh, I remember we sort of had a broader discussion about like, because it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, as I often am on criminal stuff, that uh, the court sort of outlines the rules for a strip strip search in the decision. I remember us saying, well, like, well, if they hadn't outlined the rules, like, did they actually just sort of tacitly endorse doing them as opposed to just not having it happen at all? Like, I don't know. I remember we had like a good, a good talk about it is all I really recall. Yeah, this is definitely one that comes up. I remember taking it in criminal procedure. And I remember, I'm sure I took it also in um, criminal law and the charter. But yeah, this this is the case that kind of outlines when it's permissible for the police to conduct a strip search. And more specifically, when the police are allowed to do the search incident to arrest. So under the common law, there's a power of the police to search someone incident to an arrest. And there's grounds and reasons for the police being able to do so, such things as officer safety and the ability to preserve evidence of an act. So those are kind of the two major grounds. And then what the courts were looking at in this case was like the frequency in which strip searches were being used and how this impacts an individual's charter rights. So the court actually, what I think was more interesting as like an academic exercise is the court examines the common law and the decisions from the United Kingdom, as well as the legislation and decisions from the United States and then Canadian decisions and says, this is all that we have and we're gonna try and pick the best framework. And effectively the court just copy pastes the English legislative decision our rules are on strip searches into Canadian common law. So it, it involves a, a whole list of factors that the court gets into. And um, I, I think it's interesting because strip searches are a very serious search. And as a fun point, it can be a strip search if there's a rearranging of clothing. It's not necessarily just removing clothing. That's always an important caveat that seems to be forgotten when discussing strip searches. So I was going to say, so the only other context in which I know this decision is from, and I've mentioned it before on the pod, but I did the class action moot last year in 2020, which feels like 45 years ago. And the the situation we were given was actually like a G20 uh, protest analogous situation. So one of the grounds that they were sort of putting forth the tort on was a breach, was charter breaches, and it was because they were strip searching people. And so we had to bring up all of the factors in our submissions because some people were sort of like stripped down to their underwear and other people were just kind of like 
sort of kind of had their clothing lifted a little bit, but like not really. So we had to say like, you know, that doesn't really matter for the purposes of Golden. Like if they're touching you in that way and like moving or arranging your clothing, it's going to uh, qualify, which I think would definitely not be like a lay person's understanding of what no. a strip search means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the court, the court, I think rightly puts strip searches on a continuum and says like every strip search case is going to be different and it's going to differentiate what the particulars involve. And the court, for instance, it says like a strip search in the immigration context or the context of someone going into a custodial facility like a prison is going to be different than a strip search um, upon arrest of an individual on the street or being stopped for um, impaired driving, right? So they they, they say that you can't, fit strip searching into like a night neat like a nice and neat box and that's why they do the classic legal thing of like it's on a continuum it can only be resolved on a case-by-case basis the police need to understand that this should not be a matter of routine and like that's the one big rule that comes out of it is like strip searches should be not normal this should happen rarely so it's yes, there's a whole bunch I of good think stuff I, about it. I was gonna say I think I brought that up specifically in my plaintiff submissions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that like whatever the situation was, like strip searching a thousand people at a protest or something is like so beyond the pale of what the court intended in Golden or some such. I don't know. It was people obsessed with a fish or something. I don't really remember all the details, but it was definitely interesting. Yeah. And Golden came up. So, <laughs> so uh, like I said, everyone uh, take care when listening to it. Like I said, it can be a tough case. But it's, it's important to know if you're interested in criminal law. So I hope you enjoy. The Queen and Golden On appeal from the Court of Appeal for Ontario The Dissenting Opinion of Justice Pastorache This case is not about the determination of the scope of a freestanding right to privacy. It simply concerns the reasonability of a specific search executed without a warrant in the context of a defense under Section 8 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. While this court recognizes that Section 8 protects an individual's reasonable expectation of privacy, it also recognizes the expectation is one that must be balanced against the competing interest of law enforcement. See the Queen and Araju, Coulter and Langlois. Following the adoption of the Charter and the articulation therein of the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure, this court established a general presumptive requirement obligating law enforcement authorities to obtain a warrant before conducting a search, see Hunter and Southam Incorporated. Nevertheless, several exceptions to the general presumption that prior authorization is required exists, see the Queen in MMR. Among the exceptions recognized by this court as constitutionally valid is the long-standing common law authority to search incident to arrest without prior authorization. See the Queen and Bear and Coultier Supra. The particular circumstances of this case do not require a new definition of this broad common law exception, but rather require a closer examination of the prerequisites for a reasonable exercise of this power when the nature of the search, in this case a strip search, affects more directly the privacy interests of the accused. The privacy interest is upheld not by removing or limiting the actual authority to search, but rather by ensuring the reasonableness of the search. My colleagues Iacobucci and Arbour have provided the factual background and summarized the decisions at trial and on appeal. They have also given a thorough description of the historical development of the right to search incidental to an arrest. I need not return to this. 
I would, however, note that the law has not categorized personal searches according to the degree of intrusiveness of the search. The same requirements justifying the conduct of a search incident to arrest apply regardless of whether the accused is subjected to a, quote, frisk, end quote, a fingerprinting, the taking of a bodily sample, or a strip search. These requirements were summarized by my colleagues at paragraph 75 and include that the search be carried out for a valid objective in pursuit of the ends of criminal justice, such as the discovery of a weapon or evidence, and that it not be conducted in an abusive fashion. In addition, the power to search incident to arrest is a discretionary one and need not be exercised where police are satisfied that the law can be effectively and safely applied in its absence. The unworkability of an approach that would create distinct categories of searches rests in the fact that all the types of searches listed above may take many forms ranging from a low degree of intrusiveness to a high degree of intrusiveness, depending on the circumstances of the case. For example, on the facts of this case, the strip search of the accused which occurred in the stairwell was possibly not more intrusive than, quote, a pat-down, end quote, or frisk searches. By contrast, the search in the restaurant impacted more severely on the privacy and dignity of the accused. The standard justification to which police will be held depends on the circumstances of the specific search in question, not upon the category into which it is placed. An approach which would categorize searches according to the degree of intrusiveness also risks confusion. The taking of a hair or other easily obtainable bodily sample may seem no more intrusive than a full strip search. The taking of a hair sample in the absence of a warrant may nonetheless be found to violate Section 8 if police are not able to justify the search on the basis that it was for the purpose of discovering and preserving evidence or seizing weapons incident to arrest. See the Queen in Stillman. By contrast, a strip search conducted in the absence of prior authorization may be lawful if it meets the common law requirements of search incident to arrest even if the search was very intrusive. In all cases, Providing the arrest is lawful and the object of the search is related to the crime, the sole issue is the reasonability of the search. My colleagues assert that the fact that the police have reasonable and probable grounds to carry out an arrest does not confer on them the authority to carry out a strip search, even where the strip search is related to the purpose of the arrest. They add an additional requirement in the case of strip searches that the police must establish reasonable and probable grounds justifying the conduct of the strip search itself. By placing strip searches in a category distinct from the other types of searches, my colleagues have bypassed this court's decision in Coultier that the re existence of reasonable and probable grounds is not a prerequisite to the existence of a police power to search. I agree with my colleagues that the more intrusive the search and the higher the degree of infringement of personal privacy, the higher degree of justification. However, I disagree that the common law require police to provide that they had reasonable and probable grounds to justify the strip search. Interpreting the common law in a manner consistent with the charter principles does not require the court to redefine the common law right by adding this additional requirement. The existing common law rule that police demonstrate an objectively valid reason for the arrest rather than for the search is consistent with Section 8 of the Charter, provided that the strip search is for a valid objective and is not conducted in an abusive fashion. The common law right to search incident to an arrest is justified in part by the need to discover and preserve evidence. 
the courts have long acknowledged that the effectiveness and legitimacy of the law enforcement system depends on the ability of police to find and preserve relevant evidence which may assist in the investigation and prosecution of the accused. See Coultier, see the Queen and Lim, and Bier. My colleagues would severely limit the availability of this justification for strip searches by requiring police officers to conduct all strip searches at the police station. I do not agree that the discovery of evidence should be postponed to a time where the search can take place at a police station. The common law requirements that the evidence sought be related to the reason for the arrest and that the search be conducted in a manner that is not abusive apply to protect accused persons from indiscriminate or unreasonable searches regardless of whether the search occurs at the station or in the field. The fear that evidence may be destroyed or lost before arriving at the police station is genuine. The common law rules must have regard to the realities of the situation. Police officers are not always close to a station. They operate in remote areas and are often alone. In my view, the argument that the risk of the detainee getting rid of the evidence is minimal is as unrealistic as the belief that an accused can never escape during his transfer from the police station or that a detainee can never escape from a prison. Also unrealistic is the assumption that evidence dropped or left behind by an accused could be quote, easily, end quote, be linked circumstantially back to the accused. My colleagues refer to the English legislation, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984, United Kingdom, 1984, Chapter 60, as authority for the requirement that searches be conducted in police stations. Although foreign legislation can be useful as a source of criteria to determine the reasonableness of a search, I think it is clearly excessive to adopt foreign legislation to reinvent the common law rule in Canada. This is particularly inopportune given that the foreign legislation referred to by my colleagues was specifically adopted to supersede the common law. In my view, the proposed rule that all strip searches proceed at a police station absent exigent circumstances should be left to Parliament. Furthermore, by stating that extingent circumstances will only exist where there is a demonstrated necessity and urgency to search for weapons or objects that could be used to threaten safety, my colleagues have in fact abolished the right to search for evidence upon arrest. In doing so, they have drawn an unprecedented and unworkable distinction between the objective of discovering and preserving evidence and the objective of searching for weapons objectives which they recognize in their reasons as the, quote, twin rationales for the common law power of search incident to arrest, end quote. There is no demonstrated need for such a radical change to the common law power. My colleagues come to the conclusion that the trial judge erred in determining that the search was reasonable in all the circumstances, principally on the basis that there was no exigent circumstances to justify a search outside the police station. I disagree with their conclusion on the basis that the police are under no obligation to defer the search. With regard to the manner in which the search was conducted, I would agree with the Crown that the three searches must be looked at individually and justified according to the circumstances applicable to each of them. In my view, the first search was perfectly justified. As provided for in Coultier, the reasonable and probable grounds for the arrest provided the authority to search for evidence related to the crime. The arresting officers had reasonable cause to believe that the accused was hiding evidence. Information that the accused had been observed passing a white powdery substance to other persons and receiving cash in return was passed onto the arresting officers by the surveillance team, giving rise to a suspicion that the accused would have cracked cocaine on his person. 
In addition, as the arresting officer approached the accused, he observed the accused crushing something between his fingers that left a white residue. During the course of the arrest, the police found what looked like to be cocaine under the table where one of the suspects was arrested. The manner in which the first search was conducted was not abusive. The search was minimally intrusive upon the accused's privacy. It was conducted in a private place and by one officer of the same gender as the accused. The officer did not remove the accused's clothing, but only pulled back his underwear in order to visually inspect his buttocks. The officer used minimal force until the accused hip-checked and scratched him, at which point the officer responded with force only to regain control of the situation. With regard to the second search, I would dispute in particular the obligation that my colleagues put on the arresting officer to obtain authorization of a senior officer at paragraph 113. I find no authority for such requirement and see no value in submitting the evaluation of the situation to a person who is not present nor independent of the police. Furthermore, similar to the obligation that police conduct searches only at the station, the imposition of this requirement negates the purpose of common law power by imposing an additional barrier to the ability of the police to immediately seize evidence or weapons. The case law has always recognized that the search power is applicable to the arresting officer, the very person who is in the position to act with the immediacy justified by the exception. Given the problems inherent in the requirement for prior authorization, the preferred approach to protecting the rights of the accused is to hold police to a higher degree of justification when highly intrusive search has been conducted. See S.A. Cohen, Search Incident to Arrest. In finding the manner of the search unreasonable, my colleagues emphasized not only the quote unilateral end quote decision of the officers, but also the danger to the health and safety of the accused and the failure of the police to give the accused the opportunity to remove his own clothing. In my view, too much was made of this issue of the appellant's health and safety, which is but one factor to be considered in the context of the reasonableness analysis. While it may have been preferable to conduct the search in more sanitary conditions, the appellant adduced no evidence of any health risk or health effects resulting from the use of the gloves. In circumstances such as this, I believe that regard must be had to the need for a police officer at the time of arrest to make instantaneous decisions without having the luxury of reflection. See United States and Robinson. I also disagree with my colleague's insistence that police must always give the accused an opportunity to remove his own clothing. In this case, the officer might have given the accused the opportunity to undo his pants during the search in the stairwell, but his failure to make such a request by no means rendered the search unreasonable. With respect to the second search in the restaurant, regard must have been made to the fact that the accused struggled with the officers such that they required another officer to assist them. In circumstances where the accused resists arrest or acts violently towards police, it seems unlikely that the accused will comply with a request to remove his or her own clothing. I strongly disagree with an approach which would turn this factor or any of the other factors into hard and fast requirements that must be met each and every time a strip search is conducted, without regard to the particular circumstances of the case. On the other hand, my colleagues give practically no importance to the lack of cooperation and resistance of the accused, stating at paragraph 116 that there is, quote, no requirement to cooperate with the violation of one's rights, end quote. I disagree with my colleagues that resistance to a lawful arrest is justified as a refusal to cooperate with the violation of section 8. 
In my opinion, resistance to arrest can be met with the minimal force necessary. It is also important consideration in determining the breach of the accused's privacy interest. All persons must be treated with dignity and respect, but the expectation of privacy of the accused in the circumstances of this case must be measured in light of his conduct. Despite my disagreement with the emphasis of my colleagues have placed on certain aspects of the second search, I agree that the second search did violate the accused's Section 8 rights. In this case, the police had actual knowledge that the accused was in possession of what was thought to be narcotics, providing a greater opportunity to ensure that the evidence would not be lost before reaching the station. In addition, the accused's refusal to give up the evidence meant that it could be seized at the scene only if the police conducted the strip search in less than private conditions and applied a degree of force which may not have been necessary had the search been conducted at the station. Given these circumstances, the police should have concluded that close custody and immediate transfer to the station were appropriate means of pursuing the ends of justice. Having found a breach of Section 8, it is necessary to conduct a Section 24-2 analysis to determine whether the evidence obtained, contrary to Section 8, should have been excluded at trial. As my colleagues point out, this is a theoretical exercise in this case since the appellant had already served his sentence. I will not proceed to a detailed analysis in these circumstances, but find that the administration of justice would not be brought into disrepute by admitting the object of the search. In deciding this issue, the court must consider whether the admission of evidence would render the appellant's trial unfair, whether the violation was serious, and whether the exclusion would have had more serious impact on the repute of the administration of justice than admitting it, see the Queen and Collins. In this case, the appellant concedes that the admission of the evidence would not jeopardize the fairness of the trial. The evidence of the narcotics was not conscriptive of the accused and was otherwise discoverable. Regarding the seriousness of the violation, this court has considered the obtrusiveness of this search, the individual's expectation of privacy in the area searched, the existence of reasonable and probable grounds, and the good faith of the police, see the Queen and Castlake. The search was quite intrusive due to the exposure of the accused buttocks and genitalia and the attempt by police to retrieve the evidence. In addition, the accused had a reasonably high expectation of privacy with respect to the physical area of his body that was searched. The action of the accused nonetheless led to a diminished expectation of privacy. Had the accused cooperated with police during the first search and permitted them to retrieve the evidence, the second more intrusive search would not have been necessary. In addition, the circumstances of the arrest provided the police with reasonable grounds to believe that the evidence would be found on the accused, a conclusion supported by the factual findings of the trial judge. Finally, there is no evidence to suggest that the officers acted out of bad faith or that they were plainly aware that they were violating the accused Section 8 rights. The question of whether the exclusion of the evidence would have had a more serious impact on the repute of the administration of justice than its admission must be answered in the affirmative. Drug trafficking is recognized as a serious crime. Although we do not have the benefit of conclusion of the trial judge on this issue, it is reasonable to assume that the use of this evidence at trial played an important role in linking the accused to the commission of the crime. For the above reasons, I would dismiss the appeal. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. 
hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at legallistening.com. We'll talk to you next time.